Hello and welcome. My name is Anita Posch and this is the Bitcoin Co. podcast, where you can listen to interviews with the brightest minds in Bitcoin and get insights and background stories about Bitcoin's philosophy and technology. Hello, I hope you have a good day and thank you for listening to this episode. For more information and all the links that are mentioned in this episode, take a look at the episode description on the website or in your podcast player. There you'll also find a link to send me a voice message. Before we start, a short message from my sponsors. You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high-secure way for storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Coinfinity and the Austrian State Printing House. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high-quality security materials and tamper-proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com. That's www.cardwallet.com. This episode is recorded in the Brooklyn offices of Go Tenor in New York, and my guest today is Richard Myers. He's decentralized products engineer at Go Tenor. Hello, Richard. Thank you for your time. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Anita. What is a decentralized product engineer? Does it mean you work decentralized, or is it about the products you're responsible for? I would say it's a little of both in this case. I actually don't work in the office. I'm a remote employee, but but it actually means that I build applications with a focus on that they work in a decentralized manner. I'm just like like the GoTenna Mesh is a decentralized communication system. I'm building applications that take advantage of that decentralization. That's actually the reason why we both do an interview at the moment, because you presented at the Magical Crypto Conference in New York, the TX Tenna project. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So what TX Tenna is, is it's um, part of actually a project started by the Samurai Wallet team called Mule Tools. And it's focused on basically creating alternatives to centralized internet for sending Bitcoin transactions. And TX Tenna is an application that runs on your mobile phone or, or and I'll tell you more about like what we, what we talked about at um, the MCC. But generally, TX Tenna sends Bitcoin transactions that are signed um, on your local phone, for example, and sends them over different communication methods, in this case, over a mesh network. Which is very helpful because it allows that Bitcoin transactions can be sent without having internet, which is quite crazy, actually. <laughs> exactly. I think few people realize one of the advantages uh, or that, yeah, that a Bitcoin transaction from a data standpoint isn't very heavy. It's actually a small amount of data. So That gives you a lot of different ways you can send it. You can send it over an SMS, a few SMSs. You can send it over a mesh network. Elaine Au and um, Rodolfo Novak sent it over a high-frequency radio system. So they sent it hundreds of miles across the United States. So so that is an interesting aspect that you can actually do. Um, you can send things over low bandwidth and, and alternative communication channels. So you said uh, you're also working decentralized or remote. I know you live in Sweden. What has brought you here? Where did your career start and how did you get into Bitcoin? So, I mean, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not a native of Sweden. Uh, that's a place I moved to. My wife is Swedish. So um, we uh, we decided to move there to raise a family. Um, I'm originally from California, from Los Angeles. And uh, that's why I spent most of my life. Um, and what got me into Bitcoin? That's a good question. I mean, it's sort of How far back do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, you could say that the seed of Bitcoin, I mean, 
a lot of people, I was thinking about this earlier today, a lot of people tell a story where they got into Bitcoin for whatever reason, and that sort of brought them to a political philosophy of sort of decentralized government or decentralized politics. Um, in my case, I think I was more or less raised with those politics. My father um, had always had those, uh, you know, sort of planted those seeds, I think, in his children. So, and I, I have a brother and we've always been into technology. And so before Bitcoin came out, we were actually trying to build a decentralized, um, massively multiplayer game. So that was something that we did around 2004, something based on SIM cards. So there was a, there was a contest we entered with this product. Um, so I, th I think that sort of primed us for thinking about problems in a decentralized way. And how could you do peer to peer, um, state updates, if you will, like if you imagine a computer game, um, right, you know, typically there's a central server and that central server is the arbitrator, you know, keeps the state for all the players, you know, knows who has how much gold or how much weapons or whatever it is you have in the game. Um, but we were trying to design something where that would be locally represented on each player's computer. There would be no central hub doing that. So I feel like that sort of gave us a, a mindset where when, when Bitcoin came out, you know, we could see how that actually solved a very important problem. Um, but then, I mean, the actual finding out about Bitcoin, I would say it was just, just, you know, when it was announced, basically, I think it was just something that resonated immediately with, I believe it was my brother who told me about it. And that was, you know, like the Slashdot article was, I think, how a lot of people first found out about Bitcoin. And at that time, I was actually living in Sweden. We weren't living there full time, but I was coming a lot and uh, working remotely. And it seemed like a good way to transfer money, honestly, just to remit money from the US to Sweden, because it was a very expensive, I mean, $50 is kind of a lot of money if you're not transferring a lot at a time. So I did that. I did that. I did some local Bitcoin trading, very, very little, because it was still kind of a hassle to use. Uh, and over the years, it's actually become very inexpensive to send money internationally. So I don't use Bitcoin for that. But but it got me, you know, interested enough to try it out and install the install the uh, software you needed. Um, so I say, yeah, that that was probably the early origins. And yeah, so and then that has just evolved. You know, my my interest has evolved since then. I've been a software developer my whole career. So I was working, just doing it as a hobby, but over, you know, get, keep staying very interested. I ran a Bitcoin meetup in Malmo, which is a city near us. And that was a good way to meet other people because it was kind of, I mean, back in those times, you know, 2013, 2014, you were kind of an isolated community. I mean, you had a good online community, but I didn't know anybody who was, uh, you know, face-to-face -face sort of interested in this. How I came to Gotenna was, I would say, you know, sort of I could really trace that back to Twitter, <laughs> uh, you know, which is maybe a common story for Bitcoin. But I, um, I had read about Gotenna and I, you know, and I didn't think about it from a Bitcoin context. But then I saw Nick Zabo actually post something about, uh, he didn't, he just posted about alternative communication methods. I can't remember the exact post. Um, but then I had recently read about Gotenna and I, I posted something back saying, yeah, you know, like Gotenna would be perfect for that. And I don't know if he liked it or, you know, he retweeted or so something like that. And that, that sort of inspired me like, wow, this like might be onto something like this actually might be, you know, he's a guy who thinks about this stuff pretty deeply. So maybe, you know, that kind of feedback inspired me to pursue it a little more. So I got on the message boards and it turned out at that same time, Daniela had just given a presentation at uh, a Blockstack conference. So Blockstack's another decentralized style company. Um, but she'd given a presentation where she sort of did a call to arms, like she was looking for people to help find ideas from the Bitcoin blockchain world and use them to help incentivize 
people to use a mesh network to get over this problem of, of zero start. Like if, if you're the only one who has a telephone, telephones aren't that useful. You have to have somebody to call. Uh, and that's a very uh, important problem with mesh networks and has been for a long time. So, um, so I got involved by, you know, commenting on this concept just as a normal, you know, random user on the internet. <laughs> and that has basically evolved into me quitting the job I'd had for 16 years and working now full time on this stuff. So because you're so fascinated of the, of the idea. Or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's, I'm fascinated with the idea and I, I just love the idea that I can do this as my full time job and try to make these systems work and, uh, and to see it actually manifest and, um, I mean, part of being a, I think, understanding Bitcoin is understanding what it's used for, like what is its use. And Alex Gladstein, um, he gave a talk at the MCC, which really cut to the chase of what is Bitcoin used for. It's it's something that works permissionlessly and and is resilient against any sort of attack. And one of the attack vectors is the communication layer. So it may not be an immediate threat, but but if you really want to call your currency decentralized, you have to at least think about how it could be attacked from a communication standpoint. And, and actually, I mean, I, I mentioned the Twitter, um, connection with my interest, but really it was also Blockstream announcing their satellite project, which I really think energized a lot of people about this idea of alternative communication methods. Um, and, and, you know, so they had this great solution that, you know, you could beam the, beam the blockchain anywhere in the world. And it may not be your only connection with the Bitcoin blockchain, but by having Now, an alternative, it really limits the ability of a, a local phone carrier to censor the Bitcoin blockchain because they could never censor people from putting up satellite dishes. Um, and even if maybe somehow the satellite system got compromised, then you've still got the phone system. So, you know, anytime you add an alternative, you really make the system more robust uh, and, and not just robust, like absolutely, but even if only a few people do it, it's got this sort of herd immunity effect that as long as you know you can't be censored or that you can't censor everybody, a lot of times that censorship will never actually come, will, be, will never be used if it's not effective or it can't be 100% effective. And mesh is just one more channel that can build this resiliency into the system so that hopefully it's never really needed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have said Daniela Perdomo is the co-founder of, of um, Gotenna. And she's, you know, she started this company. I, I, I'd have to give you the details. I don't remember the exact year, um, when, when they launched, but the inspiration was Hurricane Sandy here in New York, which cut out, I think it was a third of, of communication towers went down, uh, when this hurricane came through. And I, even in a hyper connected place like New York to have this realization that the systems are pretty fragile, uh, in the case of natural disaster, that was sort of the inspiration for them to launch Gotenna part, part of the inspiration for that. Uh, but, but very early on, as early as 2015, they were accepting Bitcoin as payment because I think they realized that there was a similarity in the ethos of, uh, of Bitcoin and, and of ethos of a cryptocurrency of being decentralized and resilient. That was really a good fit for, for the Gotenna mesh network, the idea of mesh radio. I watched a little bit of this, um, talk of Daniela Perdomo at Blockstack. Uh -huh. And she was talking about the idea that why is it that we don't talk with each other over our smartphones from one, from peer to peer? Why do we actually have only three to four big carriers in every country? And actually they control the network, of course. So it's a fascinating idea. So can you maybe explain a little bit technically, but not too technically what a mesh network is? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's a good observation, what you said about your phones actually have radios. They can send and receive data, but they don't send and receive data directly with each other. They go through a central, uh, central sort of radio somewhere up on a pole somewhere. So what a mesh radio is, it, w- it would be your phone talking directly to a nearby phone with its radio. And then the mesh part is that if the person you want to talk to isn't directly within range of your radio, that somebody who is within range would relay it towards, you know, in the direction of the person who you're trying to communicate with. And it could go hop to hop to hop. So that's what the GoTenna network is, is it's it's a radio that pairs with your mobile phone via Bluetooth and does that. It sends it if it if you want to send to somebody and they're not within range, it'll find a radio nearby and hop through those, go from phone to phone to phone until it's received at the at the destination. These hops remind me of something. <laughs> of the lightning network. Well, that's that's a good observation and one we've had as well. And that's, uh, you know, that's maybe a little early to talk about that now, but but you could see um, a potential way to incentivize people to run mesh relays, just like you incentivize people to run lightning relays. Now, it would be a little different because you've got lower bandwidth than you have on the internet. So that's one constraint. Um, but you have an interesting aspect where instead of with a lightning network is an overlay relay on the network overlay, meaning it's just not like your connections aren't physically tied to the communication channels. You don't have a wire between each lightning relay. Um, in the case of a mesh network, you're actually would be paying nodes who you have radio kind of within or within radio range to connect both to send your data and to potentially get paid in some sort of a payment network. Because I saw the map on the GoTenna website where one can see where GoTenners are located. I saw, for instance, in Vienna, I think there are three in Germany, I don't know, maybe 500. I have no idea. But so if I'm sitting in, I say, in Salzburg in Austria and nobody else has a GoTenner, what do I do then? Well, one thing, it's it's a very common misunderstanding when you look at that map that those are somehow like live updates of where nodes are. It's actually like a self, it's a self-reported network. So people choose to put themselves on that, on that map. And that's a, that's both a practical matter, but it's also a privacy matter. You wouldn't want these to, to phone home to our website. So there could be more nodes or there could be less nodes than what you see on that map. Um, but it does get back to that initial question about like the zero start problem. We would say that, you know, that if you are wanting to use the mesh properties of the network, if you're trying to have good coverage in your city, uh, cent- a centralized mobile phone carrier, they literally map out your city and they put yeah, transceivers where they need to be to cover the entire city. But you don't have that with a, a decentralized network. People have to, um, You have to have an, a, a, enough density of people that you just achieve that emergent coverage. Does it then also bring more privacy? Because with the smartphone, I mean, it's a fact that the carriers uh, locate us all in every cell of the network. With GoTenna, I don't have that. That's true. Yeah, you wouldn't have that. In fact, if you have a cell phone, it has its has an ID built into the, tel- the cell phone that it reports back. So even if you change your SIM card you could still be tracked if somebody knew that number. That isn't true for the GoTenna. When you sign up, you can give it your phone number. Like That's an option. But you can also just create a random number that is your ID. And you could tell your friends what your random ID is, and they'll know how to connect to you. But nobody else, you don't have to share that number with anyone else. 
So you definitely get a privacy benefit there. And, you know, in a very worst case scenario, if somebody was trying to track you down, maybe they could use sort of, you know, antenna listening devices to triangulate you. But it's quite difficult with low power, infrequent broadcasting devices. And this is this is why, you know, militaries use this kind of technology to keep themselves safe in a combat scenario, because they are hard to track people using uh, a mesh technology. So do I understand it right? Military is using mesh networks for their communication. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, full disclosure, we also have a product we sell to the military that they use. And it's a, it's very, it's basically built on the same technology as the consumer item. And, and it's not just militaries. It's also other types of sort of paramilitary groups. Like if you think about like firefighters and a forest fire, they need a way to communicate that's resilient if there's no cell towers. So there's a whole public safety aspect of, of using mesh networks that also exists. As a quite mainstream person regarding mesh networks, I didn't know that. I think yeah. that I find that's very interesting, actually. Can you tell us now, please, how does this work? We have the Blockstream satellites. They are broadcasting Bitcoin blocks down to Earth so that almost everybody around the world could, with a satellite receiver, receive those Bitcoin blocks and verify transactions. How does TX10 integrate with that? It's a great question. So that's what we announced at MCC. And, and so as you described it, you know, you can have what we call a full node that's receiving updates about the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain from the satellite. And they don't need internet for that. So that's a great advantage in places where internet might be very expensive or you're just away, you're at a last mile sort of out in the country somewhere. But how is this person who doesn't have internet going to, so they, that means they can receive a payment because they can verify that payment is good from the information they get from the satellite. But let's say they want to send a payment to somebody. They need to get their signed transaction somehow to the internet. So what TX10 does is it takes that signed transaction, it breaks it into small packets that can basically, small messages that can be relayed over the GoTenna mesh network and broadcasts them out. And then what you're, what you're expecting to have happen then is other GoTennas that are within range will pick up that message And then rebroadcast it until it gets to a GoTenna that's running TXTenna, but also has internet connectivity. And then that node that has internet connectivity and mesh connectivity will put it on the internet. And now your transaction can be confirmed. And that doesn't just have like an off-grid component, but it does have a privacy component too. So if you're wanting to basically, you know, somehow transact with Bitcoin, but not be somehow tracked down if you were in a place where that was was not allowed or or maybe you're in a place where you're doing you're a, a merchant and your power goes out a lot this would give you an alternative way to make payments and receive payments so there's both resiliency against natural disaster but also sort of a privacy aspect if if you wanted to make if you wanted to perform commerce and not and not have that you know be connected to who you are the last point where the transaction is sent To the internet again, does this one know where those transactions come from? Yeah, I mean, they don't because they might know your GID. They might know your, the ID you chose to use, but you could change that ID as you want. And you also, you might know where it came from, but all of those intermediate hops are all radio connections. So you don't have any geolocation aspect of that. You know, you can sort of draw a circle around your range and it could come from anywhere within that circle, this, this radio message. So you have, you know, unlike something like, um, well, it's a little complicated to explain the Tor network, but there are other privacy mechanisms that do this sort of relaying on the internet. Um, and those all require cryptography. This is more of a physical privacy that you get because of just the nature of the fact that it's an omnidirectional radio and the signal could have come from anywhere. 
And if it's through multiple hops, each time it hops, it could come from anywhere within a range of where it hopped. Um, so you do get a certain aspect of it. And, and one other aspect, we don't use this, but if you were doing, if you wanted to privately communicate, you could also encrypt the data that you're sending over these channels. You don't have to encrypt for a Bitcoin transaction because it's going to be public on a blockchain anyway. But if you were, if you were using it more for communications for like an SMS, you could encrypt those between the two people and they would negotiate a way to make that private. So a gold tenor looks a little bit like an USB stick, but in a, a big USB stick. How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a big USB stick, I guess. Yeah, it looks, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's you know, it fits in your hand. It's quite light. We've had people like put them up in hot air balloons and try to get, you know, if you want to get a better range, you can kind of get them up high. So they're light. The battery lasts about a day. So we had one guy, Coinsure in, in New Zealand, who wanted to test them out and He actually hid them in trees. So he made just as a test, he would like hide them in a sock and throw them into a tree and then keep hiking or, you know, going wherever he was going and make a path of these gotenas that would relay back to his house. Um, so that, that's one aspect. And how far? Which reach had he built? I think in that test, he got about 26 kilometers actually. Wow. So it was like about 12 kilometers. I mean, he was going for very specific high points. Okay. So he think he got like six kilometers between each point and then he put he put them together forget if i thought i thought he got like 26 kilometers i, I have to look to, to confirm that but it was it was like six or 12 kilometers per hop something like that so then you need your smartphone you connect it over bluetooth and the transactions you're building with the samurai wallet is that right right so samurai now you don't have to use samurai any wallet that can create what they call a raw transaction it just looks like a bunch of gibberish it's hexadecimal numbers and, and letters can make what's called a raw transaction and that's a standard format. Um, but the nice thing about the Samurai wallet is it, it, if you are offline, so if it doesn't have internet connection, it detects that and it will automatically try to send that transaction to TX Tena. So it pops up a message and says, your phone is offline. Would you like to send it over TX Tena? And if you have the TX Tena app, which is a separate app installed, it'll just send that straight to the TX Tena app, which has already been paired with your Gotenna via Bluetooth. And then it goes ahead and sends it out. Uh, and then, so then it'll go over the mesh. And then when it receives, it's received by a internet connected node. That node will send a message back over the mesh, a private message now that says it's been received. And then later when that, when your transaction has been confirmed, when it's actually, you know, initially it's not confirmed. It's just, it's just sent to the Bitcoin blockchain. It's in the memory pool, they, they say, but it'll come back. And say, okay, now it's confirmed in one block. Now that isn't maybe authoritative for various reasons because you don't know who it is who's telling you that, but you at least know that it was received by the blockchain, and, and there's a good likelihood that it'll it'll be confirmed there. And I could imagine that your longer plans are also to integrate. I mean, is it a good idea to integrate uh, GoTenna into a smartphone? Yeah, I mean, we did have a project. We tried to do this with Google. They had a project. Um, where they had these little like tiles you could you could create like a modular cell phone but uh, of course the problem with working with a big company like that is they just the whole modular cell phone project they stopped so that work never really saw the light of day um, but it would be great if you could have it built into your cell phone but the economic interests of cell phone providers isn't really to allow that to happen so they and they're the ones who really dictate a lot of the business to the cell phone manufacturers So it's a little uncertain, you know, how that could happen, but it isn't like technologically, it's 
not a difficult problem. It's really more of an economic problem. So you would have to build your own uh, devices. Well, there are, fortunately, there are projects coming out that are open source mobile phones. And I have some hope. I mean, I, this isn't like a Gotenna project at the moment, but just seeing what's out there. If this continues, you could imagine an open source mobile phone where people could add functionality like this. Then I think you could definitely see that getting added by the community um, as just a software update to an open source phone. Is the software and the software on the Gotenna, is this open source? So we have something called an SDK, a software development kit, and that allows anybody to make an application that uh, is open source. But the actual SDK itself is not open source. It's it's something that you that you get from us. It's like a, a driver, essentially. But there isn't any particular reason why it couldn't be open source. So that that might be something that does happen at some point. But it doesn't do very much. Uh, the SDK essentially has a ability to send a message and receive a message. And that's that's all it does. So um, you're not really relying on it. If you would like to encrypt yourself, you can encrypt your own messages yourself. So nothing security-oriented has to go through our SDK. It's really just the lowest level send and receive functionality. Because we had a Twitter follower today, you might know him, it's Brian Bishop, who was asking the question on Twitter. Has a third party reviewed TX10? If so, who? So we did have a security review. I don't have the details of that, but when it first came out, oh, not TX10, sorry, that's the GoTenna itself was reviewed. Uh, we haven't had a third party review it. I mean, it's open source. So of course, TX10 is open source and it could be reviewed. Uh, it's only the, the only part that isn't open source is like the send and receive low level functionality isn't open source. So no, yeah, the answer is no, it hasn't been reviewed, but it could be, it's open source. That part, those parts of it could definitely be reviewed. If somebody wants to, he or she can do it, huh? Yeah, we're, we're open to any sort of review. We would love people to take a look at it and tell us what they think. And um, it's a project that people are very, uh, you know, invited to extend and change and, and modify. I mean, I'm doing the work on it because we're interested in seeing this happen, but uh, we have had at least a few people also contribute some some code to, the, to make changes. So yeah, please, I mean, please do look at it and tell us what you'd like to change. From the marketing perspective, how do you here as a company, as GoTenna, incentivize people or get people to use and buy GoTenna's? Yeah, I mean, it's a consumer device. I would say our biggest market at this point isn't probably crypto enthusiasts. <laughs> it's people who hike, people who, we have a, we have a lot of small communities, uh, you know, like we have a group of ultralight glider people who built an application to coordinate their flying behavior. You know, like they have an application so they can see where the other ultralights are, the gliders. While, while flying. While flying, yeah, because there's no cell phone reception up there. Ah. So this is a way for them to see on their cell phone where the other, it's called Glider Link, if you want to look it up. It's an app that you can download. So that's like an example of just a, a community that needed this technology and has bought them for that. Probably bigger would be people who ski. There's a few ski lifts here in the U.S. where they've put Gotennas and maybe you can't, you don't have good cell reception, but you can communicate with your family who are skiing different part of the mountain. Um, so it's just a lot of intersecting communities right now are probably our biggest market. And, you know, crypto people who want to use Bitcoin and want to be private with their with their financial things. It's probably not our biggest community, but we think it's a very compatible community. Um, which is, you know, also why we're interested in doing this. Yeah, I think so. It's it's very compatible, I think. Yeah. And I think it's really a, an interesting and important project. Coming back to Bitcoin, I mean, this podcast it is called Bitcoin and Co. What's your personal vision or your view on the future of Bitcoin? What do you hope for? What do you maybe 
um, see as a danger? Yeah, that's a pretty broad question. But I mean, I would say I'm very optimistic about Bitcoin and I'm very optimistic about Bitcoin's effect on society. I mean, it's there's a lot of places in the world where there's, I mean, this was back to like Alex Gladstein's uh, talk. There's a lot of people who don't have the financial freedom that we have in the Western world. And for those people having an alternative currency and having, uh, you know, even even in the Western world, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, you could say sort of domination of the world's economy through the U.S. banking system. And having alternatives, you know, creates a little competition for that, which I think in the, in the overall scheme of things could, could scare people, but I think is still um, in the end going to be beneficial for the world. So I'm, I'm, and if you were, if you were to ask me sort of what are the maybe scary parts of Bitcoin, I mean, it's all the things that people were scared about the internet about as well, you know, crime, uh, black markets, things like that. Um, but I don't, I think those uses will exist in any sort of currency and, and they will probably, they will not exist more in Bitcoin as a percentage of commerce compared to just the rest of what's going on in the world of commerce. <laughs> yeah, what's happening with cash too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not like the current banking system prevents money laundering. I mean, we have certainly some good examples in Germany and <laughs> the rest of the world where, you know, massive money laundering happened and it was not stopped by any of the kind of current financial systems. So if it happens in Bitcoin, well, it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> so I don't see Bitcoin as being, uh, you know, It's not gonna. It's not gonna change the landscape dramatically in that way. But I do think that if if you look at it maybe from a broader perspective, a lot of what rich and powerful corporations and individuals can do now through the sort of conventional monetary system will become opened up to people in third world countries without any resources at all, as far as having financial privacy and financial control of their their resources. I mean, if you're rich and wealthy and in the Western world, this isn't going to be a concern for you. Nobody's going to tell you what you can or can't spend your money on or, you know, monitor what you do with your money. Uh, you have lawyers to protect you against that. But if you're a very, uh, you know, a middle class or poor person in some third, you know, developing part of the world, You, you don't have access to that, but Bitcoin could give you some modicum of, of access to that. Um, so it really dem democratizes a kind of freedom that is enjoyed maybe by a very small elite right now. Yeah, I think so too. And I hope so too. Even in the Western world, I mean, it's an alternative. And, um, I think it's a great possibility to, to access um, a kind of a financial network uh, without asking anybody for permission. I think that's a great thing. If it just would be this one aspect, I think it would be big enough or good enough or important enough, but it's so much more, actually. True. I mean, there was the whole uh, scaling debate in 2017, and then one of the rallying cries of the, of the so what I would say, the losing side was that, you know, you can't buy your coffee with Bitcoin. You can't, you know, do these small transactions. But, but honestly, we have credit cards. We have ways to do those in a pretty trustless way. Um, but we, but, but there are bigger issues which we can't do and, and having Bitcoin is important. But actually that reminded me of something that I, I thought was interesting. If you go back and look at you know, the cypherpunks, this is sort of the community that really was the origin, the founding fathers of Bitcoin. A lot of that movement came out of worries about credit cards and about what happens when you move from a cash society where you have anonymous transactions by default to a credit card based society where You know, and they were worried about this kind of as it was happening. If you think about the 70s and 80s, it was, wasn't common to use credit cards for every transaction as it is today or use bank transfers for, you know, like immediately. And everything they were worried about has come to pass. There, you know, everything about financial monitoring and, 
the banks being able to block transactions, even if it isn't illegal, you get these sort of in the US, you've had certain industries like, uh, I can't think of the example right now, but there, there are certain industries that are frowned upon for perhaps, but not illegal. And the banks can just unilaterally stop those transactions. And data leaks, of course, we've had so many reports of data leaks. That's, I think, uh, you know, one thing you don't have to worry about with Bitcoin because it's pseudonymous. So you're, you know, sure it's public blockchain, but there's no way to tie those transactions to who's doing it. So if you're donating to a charity that might be unpopular where you live, your government can't round up all the people donating to that charity by looking at their credit card statements. I mean, that's a concrete example where where this kind of financial privacy has been lost and could be regained. It's also important to uh, control your own keys because if you buy at an exchange, then you're documented. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and that's why people say not your keys, not your coins. But it's not just that it's not your coins, it's not your privacy either. Yeah. And this, you can see the the reaction of the more establishment, um, you know, fact, the establishment sort of reaction to Bitcoin is going to be know your customer, we say in the U.S. is know your customer, KYC, AML, anti-money laundering. Uh, and these are pretty recent laws. I mean, in the last few decades, these laws have really come to dominate this financial system. And it's because they've deputized the banking system as a law enforcement organization. That hasn't always been true, but now it has been true. And it's just, it's a low hanging fruit to be able to use the banking system to, as law enforcement. And as long as your government is doing, you know, lawful, well-established things, then sure, maybe that's fine. But I don't think people trust their government everywhere to do that. And and you really are putting a lot of trust in your government if they control your financial transactions, because those are some of the most intimate details of your life is how you spend your money and who you receive money from. Uh, so so having privacy there is is a pretty critical thing. And again, you have to go outside of maybe the, your own government and look in other governments. I mean, Turkey is turning off the internet and, and there are other countries doing similar things. So uh, it's a pretty important human right that, that that isn't a right unless you can enforce the right. And Bitcoin gives you the ability to enforce that right. In a peaceful way. That's true. And in a peaceful way, exactly. Nobody's dropping bombs or, or anything like that. You're You're having a revolution that's purely purely through mutual agreement among all the parties if the you know if you're trading over bitcoin you're you're participating on a at a level where you're where nobody else has to give you permission but you're not asking anybody to do anything also there's no compulsion involved yeah it's great <laughs> we're coming to an end now sadly because now it has really begun to be so really 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 interesting talking to you because uh now i got this sense of feeling that you're really long into bitcoin and that's really a, a topic for you that's that's very emotional also and um do you maybe have any book recommendations for our listeners like about bitcoin or um privacy or freedom i don't know anything mm -hmm. what you like that uh fits in that space sure i mean if you're a developer if you really like want to get into the weeds there's a few good authors um Jimmy Sun Sung has a uh, song. He has a book about like really the low level aspects of Bitcoin, which I really highly recommend. Andreas Antonopoulos is another author who really can explain to you in a very you know approachable way how Bitcoin works. Uh, if you're interested in the financial aspect of it, like maybe not the technology, but you want to understand how it works in sort of a global economic way, then Seyfedin Amos has a book which which is very very highly recommended. Um, and then. If you really just want to think about like wild haired speculation about how this stuff could affect the world, um, there's a book called, um, The Sovereign Individual by, I can't think of the author's name, but you'll find it, Sovereign Individual. Maybe we put it in the notes or something. 
And this was a book written in the, I want to say, late 90s that accurately predicted Bitcoin and, and some of the beginning effects you've seen. So, I mean, this is these are all books that are on the no normal roster, I think. So, uh, yeah, if you're no. interested in Bitcoin, these, these are good books that really like sort of tell you how people think about this stuff. Great, thank you. I will put that in the show notes, of course. And I also think I will put in the show notes the uh, talk of Alex Gladstein about human rights situation and how Bitcoin could be an uh, improvement or avoid Big Brother or more Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, coming to an end, the last question is, where can people follow you or your work or go tenor? Sure. Um, so on Twitter, which seems to be a, you know popular for, for Bitcoin, I'm at R.E. Myers underscore, and I'm also at inthemesh.com. That's that's our a newsletter or like a blog that we do here at Gotenna. And I've got a few articles there, so you can look there. And I guess you can also just follow the Gotenna forum. There's a forum if you go to our website. It's uh, gotennamesh.com, and there's a link for a forum. And if you've got questions about the Gotenna and what the projects we're working on, uh, that's a good way to interact. If I'm in Europe and want to buy a Gotenna, how do I do that? Well, you can go to our website and we do, we do sell to Europe. Um, and I, I don't know if there's any retailers. We have a lot of retailers here in the US, but I believe that's coming. I believe we're, you know, we're spreading out our retail. So I think you might be able to buy it in a store at some point soon, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Richard. It was a great interview. Thanks for your time. Bye. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and gained some new insights. If you want to support my show, please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast player, leave a five stars review and share it on social media. You can contact me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and YouTube or send me a voice message via the link on the episode page. The music is called Start With Yes by Delicate Beats. Idea and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. Have a good day and goodbye.